Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Bible and Me podcast. In this episode, Nigel Watts speaks to internationally recognised Bible teacher and author David Pawson about his life from giving land sight as a farmer to giving the flock of God's sight through Bible teaching. We pray that it blesses you as much as it blessed us. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individual speaking and may not represent the views of Precept Ministries UK. We hope and pray that this podcast will bless you in your walk of faith. If it does, leave us a rating or review and subscribe for more podcasts every Friday. And now, without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, I am absolutely thrilled to be with uh, David Pawson this morning. David is an internationally recognised Bible teacher. His tapes and his videos have helped countless people across the globe to get to know the Lord Jesus better. He's written some 50 books and his ministry continues to bless millions across all the continents of the world. So David, thank you so much for agreeing to be on our podcast today. Thank you. Um, David, how did you become a follower of Jesus Christ and why do you follow him? It's so long ago that I can hardly remember it. It was 70 years ago that I began to be aware that he was calling me. And when I look back over my life, he was preparing me for following him over many years. I just recalled one simple thing that happened when I worked on a farm at the age of 17, my first job was giving lambs sight. Many of them were born blind because the muscles of the eyebrows were too weak to pull the eyelids up. And we used to take a needle and thread (laughs) and sew the eyelids to the brows. And after about a week, their muscles took over and the thread dropped out. But I was remember sitting with lambs on my knee and with the needle and thread, sewing their eyelids open <laughs> so that they had sight. And I just recalled that and thought, I didn't realize then that the Lord was preparing me to give his lamb a sight. <laughs> Wonderful. And uh, I believe that that's what I've been doing all my life, just giving the flock of God sight. The insights and the foresights and the oversights that the Bible gives them. Yeah. Wonderful. Now, you grew up in the north of England. Um, You had wanted to be a farmer, but decided, having completed your studies in agriculture, to go into full-time Christian ministry. Why Christian ministry and not farming? That's a difficult question to answer. Um, Because while I was at college studying agriculture, I was also sharing Christ with young people. 
and there were about 50 of us and we were preaching Christ wherever we could which wasn't in churches <laughs> it was uh, to cinema queues on the beach anywhere that people gathered and the pulpit we used was an ex-army jeep the only pulpit we could use and we would park it wherever people were gathering and simply share with them what was real to us so I was already doing two careers training to study farming which I loved and had I had my way I'd be ploughing today but then the Lord stepped in and because I said to him Lord which do you want me to do and I did say to him I will do whatever you lead me but I I demand that you tell me which is your choice by midday today and on that day I was having coffee with my friend on the farm and he looked me in the eye and said you won't finish up behind the plough, you'll finish up in pulpit. And I said, that's not clear enough, Lord. And I left him and went out into a street in Newcastle and Tyne, which is my home city. And I could take you to the very stone that I was standing on when I met a retired minister called Tulip Scott. And he had been my minister when I was a little boy. And I said to him, hello, Mr. Scott, how are you? And he said, hello, David, why aren't you in the ministry? <laughs> and that was about 11.30. And I said, okay, Lord, that's clear enough. <laughs> and he made the choice for me. Really? Mm. Wow. And um, you went off and you went to study... Theology at Cambridge University, uh, you became a Methodist minister, and then you joined the Royal Air Force. Uh, I understand that your preaching did not go down quite so well in the Royal Air Force. Uh, my question is, what was God showing you at this time, through this experience, and what happened as a result? Well, it was very unexpected to find myself as a chaplain in the Royal Air Force. And I went in with pockets full of old sermons which I delivered in Methodist chapels which I called lifeboat churches, women and children first. Uh, but I found myself on the first Sunday morning in the RA facing 2,000 boy entrants in a place called Cosford, where up in uh, the West Midlands and the sermons that had gone down well with women and children went off like a lead balloon with men and after a short time of struggling to get through I asked the Lord what was wrong and he told me so clearly you're not preaching my word because for Methodist sermons, you, you preached from a text, 
which is a tiny little bit of God's Word, either one text or a lot of texts from all over to the same subject. But I wasn't actually preaching the Word of God. And I announced to the RAF men, by this time I'm out in Aden in the Middle East, and I said to the men, I'm going to take you right through the Bible in six months. Little realising what I'd said. <laughs> that was a vow, was it? <laughs> we'll come on to that later. Well, I told them then that I was going to do it. They looked a bit surprised, but after even two months, there was a totally new atmosphere. They and I were getting a much bigger view of God's purposes, a world view, and feeling there's something really big here. And that got me thinking big about God. And I loved taking them through the whole Bible. It was a bit sort of skippy because I had to get through so much. But at the end of it, I said, Lord, I'm going to be a Bible teacher and I will take people through your word. And I made a kind of little promise to the Lord that I would share everything I found in his word, treating it as honestly as I could, whatever the cost of consequence, not realizing what what cost or what consequence it would mean. Yeah. And from then on, I became a Bible teacher, a whole Bible teacher. And uh, it made such a difference. And frankly, I became a popular preacher at first on that, though it led to unpopularity later. And I began to enjoy giving sheep sight. <laughs> you began to enjoy giving sheep sight. Isn't that wonderful? Fantastic. Um, now, after leaving the Royal Air Force, you, you actually left the Methodist denomination. Yeah. Uh, why did you leave the Methodist um, denomination? And what did that cost you personally? And what did your wife Enid think about it all? Well, she's over there in the kitchen and she would tell you it meant losing my job, losing our home, and losing my pension. That's quite a cost, isn't it? That's what it cost. And her reply was, I'd rather be married to a man who obeys God and that, uh, that's the sort of wife you need. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, the specific reason that was really the, not the excuse, but the occasion, was I now had a wife and three children, or two children at that stage. And the question was, would we have them christened, which all the relatives expected. 
I'd been christened as a little boy by my grandfather, who was a Methodist minister, and uh, I had to face the question. And uh, through reading the whole Bible, or in this case, the whole New Testament, I've realized I've been totally wrong in uh, doing babies. And so I didn't do any of my children. And then I had to face myself. But why aren't you baptized? And uh, a Baptist minister way up in the Pennines in a little chapel said he was willing to baptize me. Now, that in itself was an act of rebellion against Methodism, where I promised to um, administer the sacraments according to the Methodist rules. And so, in all honesty, I had to resign. The rumour now is that I was kicked out. Um, but no, I resigned. They pleaded with me to stay and even offered to give me a deaconess to do all the christenings. Mm -hmm. But I said that would be dishonest. Yep. Because in any case, I'd be preaching New Testament baptism. And so I realised it just wouldn't work. And I resigned. Mm. And my father was the highest office any layman could have in Methodism, vice president of the conference, they called it. And uh, so the whole of Methodism expected me to follow. And I did at that time receive um, a prize for being a record probationer. <laughs> but, uh, and indeed, the president of the Methodist Church had a prayer pact with my father that one day I would be president. So I was going back on a career yeah. that everybody else had for me. Yes, yes. So what you're saying is, through your own personal study of the scriptures, you could not reconcile what you were being asked to do within the Methodist denomination, and therefore you had a choice to make. And for months, I just didn't baptise babies, but nobody knew that I wasn't doing it. Mm. But the whole thing became so dishonest that I just had to leave. But it wasn't just baptism. Uh, <clears throat> It was the whole attitude of Methodist preachers to the Bible. The majority of them were not Bible teachers. Wesley had been, and incidentally, John Pawson was one of Wesley's helpers, one of his first preachers. John Pawson being a... Um... I've never been able to bridge the last gap. <laughs> 
But yes, he was of the Pawson tribe. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I understand you've already mentioned this, that you sort of made a vow to God about this time. Um, so the vow that you made um, to God about preaching the word of God, preaching what he was teaching you through yeah. through the Bible with um, without fear of, of cost, cost or, or, or consequence. Um, has that ever got you into trouble? <laughs> Being a fearless Bible preacher like that? It's got me into nothing but trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got a couple of examples? Well, the main example was that I had to get baptised which was right against church policy. Um, but there have been plenty of others. I found I had to follow Jesus' teaching about divorce and remarriage. And we are now in the situation where there are many divorces inside the churches, outside, and remarriage is common among ministers as well as members. That has got me into a lot of trouble. How, how, how do you deal with that when that comes your way? Because, you know, we're all human. We all, you know, we don't necessarily welcome criticism. How, how, how do you deal with that? Because it could be quite painful, I guess. More, more painful to my wife than me, funnily enough. But um, the Lord dealt with my fear of man, as I would call it, um, many years ago when criticism from Wales actually was making my, li my life difficult and causing churches to cancel invitations to me and therefore limiting my ministry. I eventually found out who, who was the uh, cause of the criticism, but uh, that doesn't matter. I took my pain to the Lord and said, Lord, they are telling lies about me. They're not true and it's hindering the ministry. What do you think about it? And the Lord replied in the most unexpected way and said, the worst they can say about you is not as bad as the truth. <laughs> and I burst out laughing. And when I told my wife, she also burst out laughing. And that cured me forever of being hurt by criticism. Wow, and you've written a book entitled that, haven't you? With, with, you've written a book, um, your autobiography. I think that's yes. the title on your book, isn't it? When I came to write my autobiography, which, by the way, I never wanted to do, uh, but publishers were so pressing me to do it and eventually threatened me with somebody else doing it and rather than letting anybody else dig around in my past I, I took it on myself you did and I've just I've just personally just finished reading that book your story well it's, it's the, wonderful my editor if you like 
or publisher did say it was the most enjoyable autobiography that he'd read. Um, because I tried to be honest and uh, dug it all up myself rather than letting somebody else dig it up. But that's a, that's a wonderful thing you said there about uh, fear of man as opposed to fear of God and God's response to you. That, actually, that, that you know, to me is the heart of it. I'm more afraid of upsetting the Lord than of upsetting people. Yeah. And that's been characteristic of my whole ministry. Yeah. I think that's a word for all of us, actually. <laughs> well... <clears throat> You ask for an example of my teaching on Islam. Yeah, we'll come on to that in a minute if we All can, because right. I'm going to ask you about that later if we can. But um, now you were a Baptist minister at Gold Hill Baptist uh, yes. in Buckinghamshire and later at Guildford Baptist uh, called Millmead, uh, which became one of the largest Baptist churches in the UK. Um, why do you think the church grew as it did? I must be really honest about that and say that I think it was because I was the pastor <laughs> and I'm being utterly honest there because I had two ministries, the public ministry and the pulpit, when I shared the word of God as honestly and effectively as I could. and. I think my approach to the Bible, which is very much the approach of precessive ministries, the inductive approach, as it's called, um, that's quite rare in pulpits, but people respond to it. Uh, so that was my public side, but my private ministry was every Monday night when anybody could come and have a half an hour with me just chatting about anything and every Monday night I was just packed with a line of people waiting to see me and Friday evening when I had two groups of people the first group to prepare them for baptism and the second group to prepare them for church membership if they wanted to follow on from baptism and every Friday night I had two full rooms for those groups. And you know, none of that ever got any publicity. It was not known by anybody, even by the church members themselves. And I remember one year, for example, we had 37 people baptised, which uh, was unheard of in their history. And it was the combination of the public and the private ministry which the Lord gave me and which he blessed with the results. Yeah, wonderful. So so the preaching of the word, people responding to that, but then your one-on-one -on -one, uh, discipleship, I guess, um, of, it, it of was, individuals. It was the discipleship. Yeah. And it was maybe one-on-twenty. Yes. On the Friday evening. It was one-on-one. -on -one. Monday nights, wow. and then one on 
up to 20 on Friday night. Wow, I mean that... Uh, and what's I, I just kept doing them. Yeah, yeah. So people could, people could receive from you publicly the teaching, but then they could have access to you on a one-to-one -one basis if they needed to. No, um, it, it may be... I don't know any other pastor who, who does this, but many pastors stand at the door as people leave after service and preach. I don't know if they do it to pick up compliments or whatever, but I used to do it to find out where they were and how they'd responded to the word. Um, but I used to stand at the door before a service as well as after <laughs> and so I'd shaken hands and spoken to everybody before and after a service and I believe that made a, a difference that many people don't realise. Wow. So there was a lot going on. Yeah. Um, you left Millmead in 1979 and you became an itinerant Bible teacher running seminars and teachings literally around the world. Uh, millions of copies of your teachings have been distributed globally uh, and you have a reputation as a writer and a speaker for urgency, clarity and uncompromising faithfulness to the scriptures. So here's my question to you, Dave. Why is the Bible so important to you? Because I, my ambition is to discover truth and share it. And the one person in Pilgrim's Progress I identify with is Mr. Valiant for Truth. And I'm afraid I'm a I'm greedy for truth. <laughs> and the Bible, I believe, is truth. And speaks about a, a man who said, I am the truth. And that honesty with truth has been characteristic all my life. Yeah. I want to know if a thing is true. And uh, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's not a way. He's not a truth. He's not a life. He's the yeah. way, truth, and life. And that's why I follow him. Wonderful. How would you describe your approach to studying the Word of God? I'm going to talk about next um, about teaching it. But first of all, how would you describe your approach to studying it? I know you've hinted at it a little bit, but... But clearly, to, to have done what you've been able to do, um, you have spent many, many, many hours uh, studying the Word of God. How, how would you describe how you do that? By making it a priority. Every Tuesday morning, first thing, I began to prepare for the next Sunday's teaching and spent most of the week studying to share it with others and by making it a top priority I used to say and it was true in the beginning I would spend an hour in the study for every five minutes I was teaching anybody else 
there's no shortcut. You need plenty of time to get to know the Bible. And not many people are willing to carve that out. But if you give it priority, and for many working people that means early in the morning, but if you say I'm determined to spend time studying the Bible until I feel I've grasped it, and uh, for me, having an analytical mind, uh, which by the way I learned studying for a science degree before I went to theology, um, the mental discipline of not stopping studying until I'd really mastered the portion of scripture I was going to teach. And the only qualification for being a Bible teacher is that you're one passage ahead of the people you teach. <laughs> they don't realize that. And many times people have said, oh my, you do know your Bible. But I was only one step ahead of them. That's the only qualification to be a teacher my mind that you're ahead of the people you're teaching I mean one of the, one of the things that's um, common I guess today is that people can readily go and read commentaries or go online or uh, uh, what other people are saying about the Bible but what you're saying here is you're you're encouraging people to get into it themselves well that thankfully I proved it works yeah if you've done your study properly, that encourages other people to approach the Bible the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've, we've chatted a little bit about the ministry that we're involved with. Um, and that is, you know, we, that is our passion as well, to, to give people those... Yes, I was glad to learn of that when you showed me your literature. Yeah. How would you describe your approach to teaching the Bible. So you talked about a little bit about studying and spending time. Uh, what about teaching? Humour was one of the great tools, and I'm afraid I have an, an insatiable appetite for the humour, and uh, I can't keep it out of my teaching. <laughs> And people enjoy that, but um, that's at the human level. If you can't make a joke about it, dear me, too serious. Yeah. But no, to be more serious, um, I always gave people an outline of what I was going to say so they could follow me through and they would then learn to analyse as I had analysed a passage or whatever so sharing the analysis with them was always part of my method and we would at first I just used a big blackboard and 
choked it up, as I spoke. But then I learned to duplicate it on the service sheet, and they could follow me on that. But then, as one person said to me, they could work out how far I was from my sermon. But I gave them 50 minutes every time. And uh, their comment was, you're going too quickly. That was too short. <laughs> really? They wanted more than 50 minutes. Hmm? It's not often you go to church today and you hear a sermon for 50 minutes, I have to say. Well, the longest I've ever preached was three and a half hours. <laughs> oh, goodness me. And the ones I was preaching to on that occasion, it, it was a group of RF boys. And they would have wanted me to go on much longer. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Now, you have written some 50 books. Before we get into any specifics here, do, do you have a favourite yourself? No, let me be honest. I haven't written 50 books. A third to, a, to a half of them were transcribed from my teaching. Right. So, the first book I ever wrote, I didn't write. <laughs> it was written by the head of BBC Religion and written up from my sermons. Yeah. And, you see, I never wanted to be a writer. I told, told the Lord and everybody else, I'm not a writer, I'm not an author. I have no experience of writing. I don't want to be caught writing books. And then the Lord pointed out that a book can go so much further than the spoken word. And whereas you could spend the rest of your life in a jumbo jet, flying around the world to give the same message, if you were giving it too often, it would go dead on you, and you'd never reach the numbers of people. So I decided to write a book, and the first book I actually wrote was called The Normal Christian Birth. I was going to ask you about that, and why, why did you write that, and, and do you think that's an important subject today? Well, at the time I thought it was the most important book anyone could ever write. I had found in personal one-to-one counselling that so very few people had been fully born again. There was something missing from their beginning. And I worked on the fact that there are four vital parts to being born again. To repent toward God, to believe in Jesus, to be baptized in water. And I've forgotten the four. Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit, thank you very much. That's so important. Now, I found that most Christians had got less than four. Some had only three of those things, 
Some had only two, some had only one. They professed belief at some time. And the one that was often missing was repentance. And so I began this practice when somebody came to me with a problem. I would say, tell me about your conversion. And I listened carefully and ticked off the four things, but rarely could. And so I said, well now, before we tackle the problem you've come to me with, let's get you started properly. You haven't been baptized, have you? No. All right, let's get that sorted out. And I found out that when I got those four things right, the problem they'd come with either disappeared or was small enough for them to tackle themselves. And it was helping me in counselling people. And I realised how important it was to get all those four foundations in before going further. And uh, you've got to practice that too. And it, it was such a change from the very brief sinner's prayer which they'd been taught was the way into the kingdom. And the sinner's prayer usually didn't put a finger on repentance yeah. and didn't touch baptism. So I've had so many letters from evangelists saying, I've put it into practice, that book, and find I'm getting so much better quality converts who survive and grow because the foundation was there. Fantastic. Some of you may be listening to this and want to know more. So that book is called A Normal Christian Birth by, by David Pawson. And uh, I think it's as relevant today as it was when you wrote it. Yeah. Well, it became a classic, as people call it. It's used in many uh, Bible colleges, and uh, it's laying the foundation in teachers' lives. Yeah. Yeah. So. The image that's coming to my mind is of a house. You can't build a house on rocky or faulty foundations, can you? No. You've got to get the foundations right, and then you can build the house. And how you start the Christian life not only has an effect on the rest of your life, it also determines how you get other people started. Most of us evangelize by trying to get people to come through our way. And that's the difficulty of having an inadequate birth. Yeah. You've, you've written a book called The Challenge of Islam to Christians. What led you to write this book? And um, how has the book been received, would you say? Well, first, as an RAF chaplain, I was posted to Aden, which is part of the Arabian Peninsula and therefore a very Muslim area. 
and uh, that put me off Islam for a start. When you meet someone who's had their hand chopped off and cauterized in pitch, stop the bleeding because it pinched an orange. And boy, you realize what you're, what you're up against say nothing else. <clears throat> so I was aware of Islam in its fiercest form in Arabia and spoke on it I find now looking back on my sermon records I had spoken on it then but I was in a meeting in Reading when suddenly I began to shake or shudder and I had the horrible fear of Britain becoming Islamic. I didn't know then that I read in my daily newspaper last week that it's being predicted that this will happen by a, a certain date which was given. I did actually share what I'd felt with a few and they said, David, this is from the Lord, you must share it. And tentatively I began to share it. And then I felt the Lord say, you must make a video of this. So 120 people gathered in a location not far from here. And I was scheduled to speak to them all day about Islam. A week before that, I was in America for a very important conference and I'd previously been in Holland and a man had driven me around in Holland coughing his way all the time. I thought it'd be a miracle if I didn't pick it up. By the time I got to America my voice was fading. And in America, I had what I now would call a TIA, um, a semi-stroke, and came back here. My wife went out shopping, and when she came back, my face had fallen. And this had all happened just before I was due to give this all-day seminar on Islam. Word got out very quickly and a lot of people began to pray. And all I was interested in was telling the truth about Islam. And uh, I did actually teach them that about five and a half hours and finished up with my left side 
out of action. And three men sitting in the front row were leaning forward with their hands out, ready to catch me. They saw it coming, but I managed to complete that video, which has gone out all over the place. That was one of the times my wife and I had to pray together about the possible outcome for our children and so on. So we realised how significant it was. And I suppose that was the peak. Yeah. And I put it in a book to give it a wider appeal. And that has helped so many Christians to be prepared. You have written two books on a, on, on a, on a theme, um, similar theme, Defending Christian Zionism and Israel in the New Testament. Uh, what led you to write these particular books on, on that particular subject, Israel? My whole ministry has always included the Bible teaching on Israel. And many people think that's that means teaching the Old Testament. But there's as much about Israel in the New Testament as in the Old. Um, my interest began in the Six Day War because I was due to take out a group of people from the church to Israel at the end of the Six Day War and was naturally wondering were we going out in a safe situation and for the whole of the Six Day War I was glued to the television and really saw the miracles that happened and that was the first time I preached on Israel and how he was still the God of Israel and the tape of that sermon went round not only churches but synagogues all over the place. And it was like putting a plug into a live socket. The whole thing just almost took fire. Yeah. And since then I've it's been central not central. Christ is central to my teaching, but it's been very near the centre. God's not finished with Israel. Absolutely. Yeah. And my future is Israel's future. Mm. They're bound up together. Mm. Now that is, again, there's been a consequence because there are not many preachers who are focusing on Israel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you are now 87 years old, and one might have thought that your days of writing books could be over, but not a bit of it. Um, you did. Uh, why did you write your latest book, Completing Luther's Reformation? 
I didn't write that. You did. <laughs> it's another transcription. Of, of teaching. Of, of, of teaching. But it's yeah. come out this year though, hasn't it? Yes, just come out. Yeah. And I'm so grateful to those who've transcribed my teaching and produced it. Yeah. I have a, almost a team of people now who are seeing that other people get my teaching. Yes, wonderful. Which I'm so grateful. The Lord has provided me with a manager who looks after all my teaching yeah. and provided the most unexpected translators around the world mm. and transcribers. Mm. And they are, they are seeing my teaching reaches others. Yeah. And the latest count on the internet is that well over three million people are my congregation now, for which I, I'm amused and <laughs> quite surprised. It's the Lord, isn't it? Must be. It's the Lord taking what you have done and wanting to reach people through. Uh, isn't that fantastic? Now, um, for somebody that is setting out on their journey as a follower of Jesus, or maybe, uh, you know, people, are, uh, they've been a Christian a while, but they're maybe feeling a little bit stale or directionless. As a, as a pastor, as a teacher, looking back when you would meet people one-on-one -on, -one on a Monday night, um, somebody comes to you and says, I'm just setting out on my journey. What, what would you say to them? What advice would you give to them? I would want to check up if they'd really received the Holy Spirit. Because without him you would not continue. Okay. Um. Looking back on your life, do you have any regrets? Many. <laughs> the main one is that I didn't major on discipling men. And if I had my chance again, I'd make quite sure that the most important part of my ministry would be discipling men. Why is that? Because I believe that they are the future leaders. And that would be multiplying my ministry yeah. in others. One day the Lord will call each of us home. How would you wish to be remembered? Well, I know I will be remembered as a Bible teacher. And I know of my 50 books, Unlocking the Bible and The Normal Christian Birth will be the books that will go on teaching people long after I'm gone. Yeah. So, we can't choose how we'll be remembered. 
but I know that those two books will be my legacy. Yeah. Now, um, I'm going to ask you a difficult question now about <clears throat> whether or not you have a favourite Bible verse, because a, a lot of people do, but you, you, you know the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You may say, oh, I've got so many different verses that that I would be able to say is my favourite. But do you have a favourite Bible verse or, or, or not no. really? No. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because I don't believe the Lord inspired chapter and verse numbers. Every Bible has them. Or at least now there are a number of good Bibles coming out without chapter and verses. And uh, I discovered that a new friend of mine, a professor in America, had produced them. And I'm so grateful to him for doing so. The New International Version, mainly, has come out with our chapter and verses, and I recommend that regularly. It has cut up the Word of God in a way that God never intended. He never intended John 3.16 to be quoted without John 3.15 and 17. And those are vital to the understanding. In other words, it has in a way killed context preaching. So, you can listen to all my tapes and you'll rarely hear me quote chapter and verse numbers. I just don't believe they should be there. Yeah. And if you don't believe that, then you've got to practice that. Yeah. I believe God gave us his word in books. And therefore I have always taught books and take people through books and encourage them to read the Bible book by book. Um, as soon as you become a chapter and verse person, you are taking texts out of context. And uh, a preacher who quotes a lot of verses is not necessarily a good Bible teacher. He is probably, he's a good concordance preacher. He's got hold of a concordance that tells him every verse in the Bible on a certain word, and therefore on a related subject, and you're getting a concordance sermon. So, I just rarely ever use chapter and verse yeah. numbers. Yeah. <clears throat> if you've got a Bible without them, you've got to know your Bible. <laughs> <laughs> you've got to know the context and where you'll find the certain thing. Yeah, so no favourite Bible verse for you. I think, I think the whole, I would say the whole book of the Bible is probably a favourite for you. Um, no, I'll tell you my favourite book, the last one I've studied. 
the last one you studied. Favorite book is the last one you studied. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, um, <clears throat> we've come to the end of our time, and uh, I would just like to thank you for giving me your time to, today to, to share. Uh, I know um, I'm privileged to be able to do this, um, and I uh, just want to thank you very sincerely for the tremendous work that you've done over so many years. And um, in, in coming to this interview, I have actually spoken to a number of people. Oh, do you know David Paulson? Do you know, you know, I'm going to go and speak to David. Oh, yes, I know David Paulson. There's somebody just the other day who played music in your church in Millmead, a chap called Dave Cook. And uh, he was um, very, uh, remembering very fondly the time there. I was speaking to a pastor up in the Shetland Islands, just yesterday, because my wife and I are going up to the Shetland Islands in January to do some ministry up there. And I know from reading your book that you, you spent some time early on in the Shetland Islands, and that was very meaningful to you. So, so um, there, are, there are countless people who've been blessed by your ministry, and uh, so thank you so much. Uh, it's been a privilege to spend this time with you this morning. Thank you. You have been listening to The Bible and Me Podcast. By Preset Ministries UK. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the subscribe button now and consider leaving us a rating or review. If you'd like to learn more about the ministry or make a donation, visit www.precept.org.uk or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Preset Min UK.